you're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. On this Veterans Day, we take time to hanaho stories about our island veterans and veterans with connections to Hawaii. Starting with this piece that we aired earlier this year, it was a gathering that had been pandemic postponed. Earlier this spring, Chinese American veterans received their due after four tries. Those who had been in line to receive the Congressional Gold Medal finally were acknowledged for their service to our country. U.S. Army Commanding General Charles Flynn was the keynote speaker of the event. Chinese American veterans from World War II were model citizens. They helped rebuild a post-war Hawaii. Many were no longer with us, but their impacts went well beyond the Second World War, and their legacy lives on today in this very room. We are grateful to have their sons and daughters here today to share their individual and their amazing stories of extraordinary service. And so, in introducing the Congressional Gold Medal, our Chinese-American World War II veterans from Hawaii can now take their rightful place in the pantheon of American heroes. Retired Army Major General Robert Lee shared that minority groups played a large part in World War II. African Americans and those of Japanese, Filipino, and Chinese ancestry are owed the credit for their part in the war effort. People don't realize how dire the situation was for the United States of America back in 1941 and even a couple of years before. Why do we single out these groups to present the Congressional Gold Medal? Because for the third time in our nation's history, there was a good possibility that the United States of America was never going to exist again. We needed to marshal all 16 million Americans to fight in World War II in the Pacific and Atlantic in Europe in order to defeat the enemies of Germany and the Empire of Japan to, to win. But the other reason for singling out these groups is that they had to fight to join in order to fight for America. There are so many barriers that prevented them from just, say, raising their right hand, I'm going to go. Number one, 40% of the Chinese-Americans that served were not even citizens of the United States because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prevented them from being citizens of the United States. But yet they thought that this country was worth fighting for and joining to fight for America. So the Chinese-American World War II veterans, similar to the Nisei, and the Filipino-American soldiers in World War II, Tuskegee Airmen serving in segregated units, these units had to go through some extraordinary steps to even join up and fight for America. So really, we honor their loyalty, their bravery, their, their service? Their sustained patriotism during the very dark days of World War II, and with the commitment that this country was going to succeed in in the defeating the enemies, uh, the unconditional surrender. So this World War II generation saved the United States of America and saved the world. So how many medals did we pass out yesterday? 175, with all the delays and the, the recognition and then the dealing with COVID, delaying the scheduled uh, presentation four times. So many of the living veterans easily I would say all of them were over 95 years old. Uh, we had one, one at 100 years old. And they're really uh, lucky to be there on uh, wheelchairs and walkers. And there was one, uh, Dr. Alton Wong, boy, 
you know, I would aspire to be like him, just walking around, no cane, no walker, no wheelchair. Yes, I saw him I on TV. He, yeah, I saw him on uh-huh. TV last night, and you could tell right. what a strong spirit. Yes, yes. We had over 800 in attendance for 175 medals, and our, our objective was to to cause family reunions, people flying in from uh, all over the United States uh, to to see their uh, loved ones, uh, their, their father receiving the Congressional Gold Medal. So families bought, purchased one, a complete table, two, three, four, four complete tables so that the generations of these Chinese Americans could see grandpa and great grandpa get to get the award and understand why they received this award. We closed the ceremony with recognizing Hung Wai Ching, Chinese American. He was a member of the Territorial Guard, and it was awarded to uh, his granddaughter, Ashley Wang. So uh, Hung Wai Ching did receive the Congressional Gold Medal for being a Chinese American veteran. However, I called Baba Tanabe to the to the stage because Baba and I served as the co-chairs for the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal Award over 10 years ago. It was truly an oversight on our part not to give the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal Award to an individual that was given. Everybody basically concedes that Hung Wai Ching, with his enthusiasm and his connections and ties to the military government in the state of Hawaii, convinced the authorities not to put Japanese Americans residing in the territory of Hawaii into internment camps like the Japanese Americans on the mainland. So we thought that uh, it was worth the, the dual award, and we were very fortunate to have in attendance Governor George Ariyoshi, a World War II veteran himself, and a recipient of the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal. So I presented the Chinese American Congressional Gold Medal to Ashley, and Governor Ariyoshi presented the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal to Ashley. So that was the unique close uh, for the award presentation ceremony. So it's just an acknowledgement of the tremendous effort by people behind the scenes, uh, you know, who help have a hand yes. in our history mm-hmm. today and the outcome, uh, you know, following uh, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Correct. Correct. How, how really the people in the territory of Hawaii work work together. I tell folks in, in this process, I've learned a lot about post-war Hawaii history and, and a bit uh, during, during the war, that in a way, I think Hawaii was very fortunate during that time to have a military governor because the military governor assigned from the Pentagon, his number one mission from a military perspective was to defend the Hawaiian Islands from an expected invasion from the Empire of Japan. So he came in ready to follow the orders of the War Department to place all Japanese Americans under his jurisdiction into internment camp. And you see um, governors in California and along the West Coast, they were elected governors and they fell to the hysteria of that those times and collaborated and endorsed placing Japanese-Americans into internment camps in the mainland uh, U.S. But having a military governor with a number one mission of defending the islands, he was probably told that, well, you know, like internment camps on the mainland, you add them up with the size of the 
Japanese-American population in the territory of Hawaii, at least you needed 50,000 soldiers for, for guard duty. Where was he going to have 50,000 soldiers? Additionally, if you did have the 50,000 soldiers, shouldn't you be sending them to the war in the Pacific versus being prison guards? So he was convinced, and then he came in predetermined, placed Japanese-Americans in internment camps, and did an about-face. That was General Emmons, at that time the military governor of the territory of Hawaii. And this month is a big month because it's the anniversary of that executive order that triggered the Mm -hmm. internment. Incarceration, yes. So I guess it's fitting that we just kind of pause and think Mm -hmm. about where we've come and the politics today, the political climate, and Mm -hmm. where we need to go. And uh, would you permit me to say there's another situation that we need to correct, an injustice that we need to correct, the plight of the Filipino-Americans? Yes. Again, people forget that the Philippines was the territory of the United States. General Douglas MacArthur was the commander of American forces in the Philippines. American forces included Filipino soldiers in the scouts, first and second Filipino regiments, And when the Japanese invaded and MacArthur says, I'm going to head down to Australia and regroup, and says, I shall return, he directed the guerrilla fighters. You have to consider them Filipino-Americans, you know, in the territory of the Philippines. Ask them to fight for America, be guerrilla fighters behind enemy lines, because you are United States Army soldiers, you will have better benefits. And there were promises made. Promises made, especially by a general. Mm-hmm. You know, normally the, the word is good. And uh, in 1947, Congress voted the Rescission Act to not make the Filipino soldiers that fought on the side of the United States aren't U.S. Army veterans. That needs to change. That was Major General Robert Lee talking about the ceremony held earlier this year to honor Chinese-American veterans who were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. The event had been put on hold for several years because of the pandemic, and finally families were able to gather to receive the award. Today, we're rebroadcasting stories about veterans. Hawaii's Wilfredo Tungal knows a thing or two about duty to country. The retired lieutenant colonel served 28 years and is passionate about the story of Filipino vets. He talked to us about a film called Faces of Courage, untold stories of World War II Filipino veterans. It made its broadcast debut a year ago, thanks in part to Move Me Hawaii, a Beta Beta Gamma Foundation effort that highlights social justice issues. The interview originally aired last Veterans Day. Here's Tungal talking about why the program is so important. It's basically a story of the Filipino veterans, both from the Philippines and also from Hawaii and the continental U.S., who fought in the Philippines between 1941 and 1946, early 1946. It basically tells of how the Filipino veterans made tremendous sacrifice in helping the U.S. 
government fight the Japanese during the war in the Philippines. Yet after the war, the promise that were made to the Filipino veterans that they will receive the same benefits as the regular U.S. Army soldiers were rescinded at the end of the war, and they weren't able to receive the benefits that usually the regular U.S. soldiers would get. For example, the GI Bill, you're familiar with that, and uh, Veterans Home Loan, and you know survivors' benefits. So those are benefits that they could have received if they were treated the same way as they were promised when they volunteered to help in the war effort. I mean, it's basically an injustice, you know, in, in my opinion, because you promised these people, these soldiers, that, look, we will treat you the same as our own soldiers, and yet after the war, they pulled the rug under them through this rescission act that is still in the books. And so they never receive benefits. I'm referring to the Filipino veterans who fought in the Philippines and not the Filipino citizens, U.S. citizens or nationals, who are already living in California, the West Coast, and Hawaii, who volunteered. So we also honored them. Yeah. So that's the first Filipino infantry regiment. And then there was a second infantry Filipino regiment because um, uh, many Filipinos in the U.S. also volunteered to help fight in the war. Yeah, and we do hear so much about the 442nd and the highly decorated units of the Japanese-Americans that fought. But the Filipinos did play a big part in the war. Very much so, Catherine. You know, I think it would be fair to say that had the Filipinos not joined in the war effort, that the U.S. probably would not be able to win the war, at least in the Philippines, and who knows, maybe even the, the Pacific. Yes, and the Japanese took over. They were there in the Philippines. They were there in Guam. And, you know, I know my family was in Japanese concentration camps at the time. You know, we heard so much about the death march of Bataan in the Philippines and how rough that was. So the Bataan death marches, it's when they captured Bataan and the island of Corregidor. They marched over 78,000 men, almost all men over 70 miles in a period of a little over a week without adequate provisions, food, medicine, water. And, you know, if you fall down and you can't get up, they just leave you alone. Or worse yet, the Japanese soldiers actually bayoneted you to death. So that's very, very famous, at least in terms of the, you know, the military circles. Over uh, 10,000 soldiers died during that march. Yeah, Filipino, mostly Filipinos, and there's just a little over a thousand uh, American soldiers. And so this film aims to tell these stories that maybe the the wider audience doesn't realize happen in history, and to right the wrongs, the injustices about getting benefits for those Filipino nationals. Yeah, primarily we wanted to educate the general public, especially the younger generation, of the contributions of these Filipino soldiers. When I was growing up and uh, going to public school here in middle school or high school, never heard anything about the Filipino soldiers or their contribution to the war. I mean, I've heard of the 442nd and I'm familiar with their story, but there was never anything in the books about the contribution of the Philippines or the Filipino soldiers in particular during World War II. 
we're hoping that at least with this film that we'd be able to educate the public, they would know about the contributions, and at the same time, hopefully that we can get them to help us down the line maybe revoking this Recession Act. And talk about the efforts, too, by lawmakers to right this wrong. Through the years, there's been some effort to rectify the injustice. Two individuals in particular deserves credit, and that's the two Dannys, the two senators, Daniel Inouye and Daniel Akaka. They have tried to reinstate the benefits that should have been given to these veterans. You know, this is as early as in the 1990s, or even earlier, I believe, but they were unsuccessful. And I think it's because of money, how much it's going to cost. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are still alive at that time. So they were unsuccessful, but eventually they were able to at least provide some partial remedy through compensation. They awarded 15,000 lump sum one-time payment to Filipino veterans who are living in the U.S. and $9,000 to veterans who are living in the Philippines, okay, as long as they can prove that they fund the war. Secondly, there were a partial granting of immigration to the U.S. for Filipino veterans who wants to come over. In the late 80s, the bill was passed and was signed into law, I believe, in 1990. That would allow Filipino veterans to immigrate to the U.S. So thousands immigrated. I don't know the exact number, but we're talking about maybe 25,000. A lot of them moved to Hawaii because they heard about Hawaii and how it's almost like the Philippines in terms of the climate and the large Filipino population. So I think the estimate was like we had almost between 2,500 to 3,000 Filipinos who came to Hawaii, but they have to come by themselves. They cannot bring their family. So some of them have spouses. They can't bring their spouse right away. They have to go through the process of becoming citizens and then petitioning for, you know, for their spouses. And if they have minor children, they can but any other relatives, they're treated differently. I'm sure you're familiar with the quota system for each country. So some of their adult children who they petition are still waiting. And there was also, though, the idea that there were stories of value. There were soldiers that should be eligible for the Congressional Medal. Right. And I believe it was around 2016, the public law that was passed awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest award that the country can bestow by Congress, and then signed into act by President Obama, which basically awarded Congressional Gold Medals to any service member, not just Filipinos, but primarily Filipinos. That's why it's called the Filipino Veterans Congressional Gold Medal Act who fought between, I believe it's like 1941, all the way to the end of 19, almost the end of 1946. So if you fought in some capacity, you're entitled to receive this Congressional Gold Medal. So the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project established this medal through the Act of Congress. And this is a self-supporting endeavor so it's not funded by Congress. The Phil Betreff, for short, basically raised the, the funds to buy the medal, to award it. We have a ceremony, and then we give it to the living veterans if they're still alive. Or if they've passed, we still honor them through their next of kin. So the next of kin receives it. So how many have they awarded so far? In Hawaii, we awarded over 200 medals, and we're still awarding them. We had two public 
ceremonies. The first one we awarded over 150, and then the second one I think we awarded over 75. Is and there a third round coming? We'd like to, but with a COVID situation, we couldn't do it. We still had some applicants, and so we have about 20 in this past couple of years. So what we did, and I have to get give credit to our uh, director, Anita Akuhiro, she did a virtual ceremony, basically. Uh, okay. Yeah. So with this film, you're hoping to raise awareness and then raise funds for this cause? Yeah. You know, of course, it's totally voluntary. And, you know, we are a tax-deductible nonprofit. And because we do incur expenses in terms of not just the metal, because now the metal costs over $150 each, but also we have an education project. You know, we're trying to push out this curriculum that hopefully school will adopt nationwide. So if they want more information, they can go to duty to country, just one word, no space, dutytocountry.org. We've been listening to a rebroadcast of an interview with Wilfredo Tungal of the Filipino Veterans Recognition Education Project, Phil Vet Rep for short. We first aired this interview on November 11, 2021. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with holiday gift ideas such as original art, jewelry, and clothing by Hawaii artists. Online ordering at magnolia-hawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lindsay Andriotti, founder of The Kindness Club. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about kindness, the positive virus we all want to catch. Be there. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. We continue with our Veterans Day Hanaho show. Coming up, we have a story about a ring that a World War II soldier from Hawaii lost in France that found its way back nearly 80 years later. But first, we have a story about Native Alaskan veterans who found a connection with our islands. The documentary, Hunting in Wartime, focuses on a group of Native Clinket Vietnam vets from an island in Alaska named Huna. According to them, more men went to the Vietnam War from that island per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. Let's revisit an interview that the Conversations Russell Subiano had with the film's director, Samantha Farinella. They talked about why so many of the Clinket were chosen and the bond they formed with our islands. 
When I grew up, I wanted to be a hunter and a fisherman, and I could do both of them. I don't think any of us said that we were going to be soldiers when we grew up. Colonel, come over. How come you're so tough on the Indians? He said, I know these Indians. They're from my hometown. They're tough, and they could take it. Survival, right? They have to survive really harsh winters. They have to know how to hunt and fish. And of course, that made them really good soldiers because they knew how to track deers and they knew how to track people. And it was just this kind of survival thing. And I think it, it became much bigger than what I thought. I thought I was going to just make like a piece about these guys, but it, it got much deeper, which I'm glad it did, you know? And, and I, I think this movie does touch on things that other movies don't. I don't think we're ever asking the right questions in media about the Vietnam War. But what I did want to do with my film is just focus on these vets who like went through major discrimination. No dogs, no Indians allowed in this bar. Like it was a complete discrimination, but still having that pride in the country to go fight. There's so it's so many complications and contradictions too that I wanted to show in humans. Like I think it's just very easy for people to think, oh, well, you're patriotic, you do this or you don't do this. Or and I think there's a lot more nuance in in people. And, you know, these men don't feel, a lot of them don't feel a ton of pride in what they did, but they still wear their hats and they still wear their, you know, medals and stuff. I don't know. I, I, try, I tried to make this film in their words. You know, there's no narration. And I think it's told very honestly because it's in their words. I think it reminds us that we're not completely one thing or the other. No. You know, we're always a mixture of things, sometimes battling against each other, sometimes being at peace with each other. But I think it talks a lot about the, the human experience and it's not always easy. One of the men you interviewed, I believe his name was Ken Austin. Yeah, Ken, yeah. Lives in Hilo. Can you tell us more about him and do you know how he found his way to the Big Island? So many men from Huna men and women, they love Hawaii. I think there's a very big connection between Native Alaskan and Native Hawaiian. So I believe Kenny was stationed here. I didn't go into the depths of, because he didn't want me to, so I couldn't. Basically the military recruited Ken to be an interpreter. So he got full Vietnamese language training. And unfortunately he was part of the Phoenix project. So he got to witness a lot of torture, a lot of murder. And he didn't really want to talk about that. But I believe his training was here. And he loved Hawaii. So, I mean, he spent like, I think like 20 or 30 years here. Like I know he got his degree in social work and Hilo was his home. And I think he found peace here. I think there's something about Hawaii that made him feel more at peace. And unfortunately he passed, I think in 2017 or 18, he passed. They loved Hawaii. So there, there was a definite connection. And that's what I kind of wanted to tap into here. I called a, a veterans organization and they were going to set up a, a, a screening in December for the vets. But then for some reason, the uh, Oahu Vet Center said my film was too political and won't allow the film to be shown in the, in the Oahu Veterans Center. So I'm going to, I'm trying to find another place. So if anybody can sponsor, you know, a room for me, I would be happy to show veterans here for free. So I didn't make this movie to make money. I made this movie to to help people. And people in social work and psychology up in Alaska use this film as kind of an icebreaker for men to talk about it. You know, when, when I had my screening there, daughters and sons came up to me and said, I know my father went through this. I had no idea my uncle did this. Those guys held that stuff in for probably 40 years. You know, I think it's an important film. I think that, you know, people who see combat, they don't talk about it. You know, I feel like you always got to watch the ones who brag because it's probably not, they didn't really experience it. 
I found in this film, you know, interviewing 20 people, guys usually don't talk about it. We used to admire these great big long jets with long wings and it had a cloud going behind all of them. We didn't know it was Agent Orange. Your dreams were bad. Dreams were bad. We weren't made to kill. We weren't made to kill humans. I had two uncles who served in Vietnam, and I asked them about their experience when I was young, and they said they don't talk about it. They both passed within the last four years, so I never got the chance to hear their account. And I, I don't know from even from their kids that they talked about it, in your film, a handful of these veterans talk about their experience in war. In fact, they emphasize the importance of talking about it as part of the process of coping with the aftermath of war. Can you talk about how you were able to get these men to open up about their experience? And did you get the impression that we wouldn't have lost so many Vietnam veterans to depression, alcoholism, addiction, suicide, if more had been done to give them a process? Yes. Or talking about what they went through. A hundred percent. I feel like, I mean, the first thing we have to kind of discuss when we talk about this is patriarchy, right? Where men are taught not to show emotion, not to cry, not to do anything. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think me being a small woman and extremely open, like when I interview people, I'm very open about what I am, what I do. You know, I know I'm good at some things and I know I'm good at interviewing. And I feel like I was able to get their trust. And I came back every summer for like five or six years, right? So I was part of the community after a while. You know, I still get Facebook messages and stuff. So I think that helps. But honestly, the first time I came, that's when I got 90% of my stories was like that first trip in 2010. And that was, you know, I felt very honored about that. But it, it was something that I think I was an outsider, but that they trusted. And I don't think that they really wanted to tell their closest people like what they've done or what, yeah. what, went, what went on. I think it's really hard to talk about, you know, murder and death and violence and, and stuff that really altered your life at such a young age, you know, you're what, in your 20, early 20s or late mm -hmm. teens. So I'm hoping that society is changing a bit, you know, with all the Me Too movement and all this different stuff that, you know, I see it when I teach, you know, in universities over the past, I've taught for like, um, like five years, maybe, and, and I see a difference in guys, I feel like they're more open and I, and I really hope that's the case. One of the things that, that really impacted me hard with the film was your use of archival footage and clips from the war. There's many images I have never seen before. The dead bodies, the decapitated bodies. And I think those are very powerful in conveying just the, the brutal truth of that war. How were you able to attain those images? And what was your philosophy behind using them within your film? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I wanted to show war like war is. And I don't think that we see it that much, to be honest with you, even, even in graphic movies. I want the pictures I showed and the words of the men to kind of have a confluence because it is, it is a, it's a decision I made and it's, it's a harsh one. And it took me a really long time. I basically spent three days in Washington, D.C. at the National Archives. So that is the bulk of the images were at the National Archives. I also did go to Wikimedia Commons. I found a picture of waterboarding that kind of shocked me because it was, you know, I learned about waterboarding more with the Iraq war and, and Guantanamo Bay and stuff like that. 
And I didn't, I didn't think we were using that in Vietnam, honestly. I did a ton of research because I really wanted to find photos that were not only graphic, but just showed the brutality of what we did there, but also what our soldiers had to do. It must be really tough to be there and to be told, you know, round up these people or do this or do that. And I tell it along the story that Victor's talking about, you know, how soldiers would rape people, but we weren't that way, you know? And I wanted them to know that it's just like in, in a city or anywhere else, you're going to have people that abuse power and you're going to have people that protect people, right? That's just like what we do. And soldiers are a microcosm of society. So you're going to have people that are maybe abuse power and people that support and help people. When I was watching that, I felt like it was important for me to see the honest brutality of war. Because I, I think a lot of times war gets kind of glorified in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I have a lot of family in the military and I'm very proud of them, but I can't even relate to what it would be like. I couldn't even understand, comprehend what it would be like to have to take another life or be in a position where it's either you or them. And I think the impact that these images gave me just kind of made me feel more compassion for the things that our soldiers went through. And so I appreciate your choice to be as honest as you were in that film. Soldiers are asked to do difficult things during war, unless we've been there, we, we can never know, you know, what the psychological and emotional trauma they go through. Yeah. What I love about your film is that you end on a hopeful note. And without giving too much away, can you talk about your ending? Was it important for you to have some light at the end of the tunnel? At the end, you know, the, these men, I was interviewing them. They were resilient. They were sober. They were, they went through a lot. So their life isn't easy, but they really did make something of it. They had families and they, and they helped people and they were fishermen and they were part of the community and they really climbed back out of that crazy pit. And I really wanted to show that you're testing yourself to the limit, right? As a soldier in any way. So you can turn that around, right? Even if you're at the depth, the depths of whatever, like we know what the Afghanistan Iraq war, like the, I think the suicide rate is the highest from those. And so this doesn't end. It's not like it ended with the Vietnam war and everything's hunky dory now. It's not. I think there's a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in war to get you through it. And I think that that follows you out. And it's just, how do you get out of that? And, you know, and I, I would just say like, seek help, talk to people that you love. You will come around, you will hit bottom and then you'll bounce, you know? And I think that that's a very important thing because we're, we're losing too many good people because there, there's not a lot of outlet, especially with mental, you can, you can, you can get legs now that you can use that you didn't have before. And you can do a lot of things that are amazing with technology of medicine, but that doesn't always translate with mental health. And I think that that's the one thing that we really need to, to kind of get more around for our soldiers is, is, is the mental part, because it's, it's a tough thing that we ask them. That was a rebroadcast of an interview Honolulu-based filmmaker Samantha Farinella did with HBR's Russell Subiono. They were talking about her documentary, Hunting in Wartime. The interview originally aired on November 11, 2021. I'm like a soldier getting over the war. I'm like a young man getting over his crazy days. Like a bandit getting over his lawless ways I don't have to do that anymore I'm like a soldier getting over 
the war There are nights I don't remember And pain that's been forgotten And a lot of things I choose not to recall Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This week on Science Friday, we look at how states are handling a surge of RSV in kids. RSV is the predominant virus affecting the state right now, and as usual, it's hitting the youngest residents particularly hard. And a doctor prescribes how to keep our kids and ourselves safe, all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. If you listen to Morning Edition regularly, you're probably familiar with StoryCorps, the Brooklyn-based organization focused on recording, preserving, and sharing stories from Americans. The group was on Oahu this past June, gathering stories of people's experience with the military. Stories like the one Oahu native Kevin Kuroda told us about his uncle, Robert Kuroda. Robert was a Farrington alum and a member of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in World War II. He was killed in action near Bruyere, France, after leading his men on a mission to take out snipers and machine gun nests in October 1944. For his bravery and sacrifice, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Around the time of his death, Robert's class ring was lost. Then, nearly 80 years later, it was found in November 2021 by a Frenchman named Sebastian. After months of failed attempts to reach the Kuroda family, it was finally returned to them this past May. Here's a Hana Ho of the interview that Russell Subiano did with Kevin Kuroda in our studio. Do you know how he got into the Army? After Pearl Harbor was bombed, mm -hmm. he had wanted to become an employee at Pearl Harbor and basically was denied access because of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And he became one of four brothers who enlisted in the Army. And of the four brothers, he was one of two that served in combat. Uncle Robert was awarded the Medal of Honor after the fact, and his older brother, Ronald Kuroda, was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and had received the Medal of Honor on behalf of Robert and the rest of the family. What was your family's feelings about him and his brothers going off to war? You know, I'm the generation past, yeah. but I'm sure there was a lot of pride. I'm sure there was a lot of anguish. Mm -hmm. I had remember distinctly hearing my father say that his parents were against Robert joining the Army because he already had two brothers who were serving. Mm -hmm. But because of his situation, not being able to get employed is why he adamantly wanted to serve and did serve. When your dad talks about his brother, how does he describe him? He was as straight as an arrow. Yeah. He was uh, integrity. He was not a gambler, not a drinker. He was uh, just a straight arrow, and that's how he was described. 
Yeah, that seems like a, like a good quality for a soldier, right? Correct. And your story has to do with the Battle of Bruyere. That battle took place in October 1944. Soldiers from the 442nd fought to free the French town from German occupation and rescue the lost battalion of Texas. 800 soldiers were lost, and that battle is considered to be one of the 10 major military battles fought during World War II. But your story was about your uncle's class ring. What's that story? We recently got back from France. And the reason we were in France is Uncle Robert, he was killed 77 years ago, October 20th, 1944. Mm -hmm. And in November of 2021, a Frenchman by the name of Sebastian had found his Farrington High School class ring. And in finding that ring, Sebastian is just an incredible individual with an incredible family. He had done research to try to locate and return the ring to Robert's family. Mm -hmm. He had reached out to a number of 442 organizations without success. So he had reached out to different businesses, even my uncle's auto shop, mm -hmm. without success. And from that, he had contacted his cousin, who was in Iowa, Bridget. Mm -hmm. And Bridget, who was bilingual, who had called Crow to Auto Body. And it was my cousin who had contacted me to say, hey, there was someone from Iowa who was contacting the family to say that Uncle Robert's ring was found. They want to return it. We weren't quite sure it was a true story. Right. But I followed up with the email to Bridget. We found out it was true. And Sebastian had wanted to return the ring. This is when COVID was just rampant. So we established a relationship with Sebastian, and we asked him to hold on to the ring. And when time allowed, we had wanted to go to France, meet Sebastian, personally thank him, and that's what we ended up doing. Oh, that's incredible. And so for the month of May, Mary and I flew up, took a train to Epinal, France, got picked up by Sebastian, and we spent three wonderful days with his family, and he had that day presented Uncle Robert's ring to us. He had made a, a stand or display to highlight the ring holder, and the following days, he was able to take us specifically to the exact spot wow. where the ring was found. Yeah. And it was emotional, you know, it was, it was heart pounding, it was teary eyed, but it, it was very meaningful. And after that, the following day, or maybe that afternoon, he took us to where Uncle Robert was actually killed. Okay. So, you know, it, it, was, um, it was moving. And yeah. that was part of this overall message, how 77 years after the fact, mm -hmm. We were able to get communication, and, and I, I have to give a lot of credit to Sebastian yeah. because he had researched without getting response. He had looked up previous articles with my father and my uncle standing over Robert's grave. Mm -hmm. And this was a Star Bulletin article many years ago. But he researched it, found Kuroda Auto Body, and con contacted the business. Uh, my cousin contacted me, and full circle. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. How did he find the ring? What was he doing that's, when he found that's it? That's good. So I asked him a lot of questions, yeah. and it seems that three years ago, his son mm -hmm. had requested uh, a metal detector for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so he buys a metal detector for his son, and he says, I want to do something with my son, so he bought one for himself. So he bought the metal detector. They started doing some metal mm -hmm. detecting. The son kind of waned. They didn't continue, but he continued, and he has a couple of friends who, on their spare time, they go out and do it as a hobby. And he's found a number of items, three rings, mm -hmm. but just one that he was able to return to our family 
two other rings that did not have any identification then. Mm -hmm. And the ring that he found for Uncle Robert was his Farrington High School 1940 class ring. On the inside, it just said R. Kuroda. Mm -hmm. So by knowing the high school and what was inscribed inside is where he did his research. And he, at this point, a lot of the residents in France are generations down, very appreciative of the Americans, Mm -hmm. 442, for liberating them because prior to liberation, they were occupied. They were occupied by Nazi Germany and they saw the sacrifices of 442 and even his sons. They are appreciative of what the sacrifices and what the 442 did. That's pretty incredible to think that that ring was on the ground there 77 years ago. Yes. And over the course of seven decades through all kinds of weather and, you know, all kinds of, of erosion and, you know, I don't know, development and whatever else might happen in that time, it was in the right, perfect place for Sebastian to find it That's, while he was out metal that, detecting. That, that, is part of this, yeah. that is part of this incredible story. So you guys went out there, you, you spent this time there, you got to experience the, the area. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your reaction was to the place where your Uncle Robert passed? It was, um, the feeling was mixed. I felt pride in a sense that America and 442 did to liberate France. And, you know, I was saddened yeah. uh, because it's the only sibling of my father who I never got to meet. Yeah. And it, 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 it was surreal. You know, you're, you're walking on this mountain path and it's peaceful. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there are other families, uh, not many, but it's a trail. But as we walked, whether it was the area where he was killed or the area where they found the ring, which is close by, there's still remnants of the horrors of war. They still have foxholes, many, many foxholes of where they were dug in. They had memories of shells or motors. Motors are dropped in uh, big holes, and this is 77 years later. Yeah. So it, it was, I had a, a range of emotions. Yeah. I guess at this point, the big question is, where is the ring now? The ring is right here. Wow. Yeah. Would it be okay if I took a look at it? Would it Absolutely. Be okay for me to... You know, it's a class ring from 1940, and we had talked about discussions about the importance of the ring. Mm -hmm. You know, I I believe at that time, Uncle Robert may have been one of the first siblings to graduate high school. And to put out the resources Mm -hmm. to get a ring, I thought was very meaningful. Yeah, class rings are not cheap. And this was in 1940. You know, I don't see class rings now as being a big item that people spend resources Mm -hmm. on. But back then, I know it meant a lot. Did Sebastian say what condition it was in when he found it? Was it just like covered in mud or rusty or anything like that? Or Yeah, it was, I think, about six to eight inches deep. And he had dug it up, was uh, been underground for 70 plus years, yeah. so not in the best condition. And what he did is he just cleaned it up so he could read it and did the research so he could return it. This is a pretty incredible ring. It's very simple. It's very simple. It, it has what looks like the front entrance of Farrington mm-hmm. imprinted on the front. There's, there's some lettering around the rim. Those are the words that say, enter to learn, go forth to serve, okay. which was so appropriate for the school and uh, his journey. Yeah, do you see the year on each side? I see 19 on one side, 40 on the 1940. other. 1940. And I, underneath, yeah, very clear, R. Kuroda. After I got back, I made sure my dad got to see it. Mm-hmm. So my dad got to hold his brother's ring. 
Prior to Memorial Day, we went to Punch Bowl, where mm-hmm. Monco laid to rest, and we made sure that we paid respect to Robert with my dad in the ring. Robert's Medal of Honor is currently at Kuroda Auto Body. Cousin Roland in the shop had made a very respectful display mm-hmm. of Uncle Robert's uh, accomplishments and where the Medal of Honor is. I did check with Roland. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to take for granted, so I said, hey, uh, Roland, after the family sees it and after the story is told, I thought it was appropriate that the ring stay at the shop yeah. where he had put the Medal of Honor. And, you know, he, his response was, you know, it'd be an honor. He, yeah. you know, it'd be an honor to have Uncle Robert's ring after all these years join the, the Medal of Honor in the shop. Wow. So that's where it's going to end up. That's, that's great. That's great to hear. What was your reason for wanting to share this story? I mean, I, I think it's an incredible story. But what was it about the story that so excited you to share it? Yeah, I'm a private person, mm-hmm. not the best public speaker. When I had told friends or I had, you know, posted some information on Facebook, just all the all the feedback said, you know, this has to be shared. Yeah. This story needs to be shared. And over time, I agreed. I would have been okay just retrieving a ring, sharing with family and, and personal friends, but the the 442 sons and daughters, you know, they said this has to be shared. Other friends who've had relatives in the military, 442, they said, no, this has to be shared. And agreed, it, it's a story that should be shared. Yeah, it's an incredible story of the kind of friendship and love that can come out of someone's sacrifice. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming in and for telling us the story. Thank you very much, Russell. That was a rebroadcast of the interview retired Hawaii House of Representatives Sergeant of Arms Kevin Kuroda did with HPR's Russell Subiono. Kuroda was sharing the amazing story of how his uncle Robert's class ring was lost in France during World War II and returned to his family. Military-related stories like this were collected by StoryCorps on Oahu this past June and will be archived in the Library of Congress. That's it for this Aloha Friday, our Hanaho show of stories of Hawaii's veterans. We'd like to hear from you. Call our talkback line and leave your comments, 808-792-8217. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.